On February 28th, 1844, nearly 400 of Washington, D.C.'s social elite, the who's who, the politicians, the businessmen and their wives, were invited to go for a cruise on the Potomac River on the most technologically advanced ship in the U.S. Navy. This was one of the first major steam-powered warships. It was called the USS Princeton, fastest in the world. It had twin sails, and it had a steam-powered engine, which made it incredibly fast. Steam was just coming into its own, and it carried two 12-inch, 225-pound guns. And in order to gin up some excitement for this project and to hopefully get a little bit of federal funding to go towards the Navy, uh, there was this event that was planned. It was just a cruise and to watch a demonstration of the guns. They had two guns, one of which was called the Peacemaker, the big gun. And they fired it before lunch and it launched its cannonball over two miles, which was incredible at the time. And after lunch, all the guests were so excited, they requested a second firing of the gun. When they fired this gun for the second time, it exploded. It injured more than 20 people on board and ended up killing six, including two sitting U.S. cabinet members, the Secretary of State included. Another person who was killed was uh, President Tyler's father-in-law-to-be. He never would be his father-in-law in the flesh because of this accident. What should have been a joyous occasion and was a joyous occasion became a terrible disaster, like what happens in tonight's text here, although for a much more serious reason than a simple accident. These chapters describe the ordination of the priests and their inaugural sacrifices, the first sacrifices that Aaron and his sons will offer. But in Leviticus chapter 10, we're going to read about the death of the two firstborn sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. And they're not just going to die of natural causes, they're going to die at the Lord's hand. He's going to consume them with his fire. And the lesson that we have to learn tonight is that it is a fearful thing to approach the living God. The whole book of Leviticus, as I've said for the last two weeks, is all about answering the question, how are these people going to dwell in the midst of God's presence? And we are reminded very strongly in this passage about the fearful nature of God's presence. He is a consuming fire. And the lesson for them is the same for us today, that God is holy. And we, as New Covenant believers, the priesthood of the Lord on the earth today, we also must be holy in His service. So as we read this narrative interlude in the book of Leviticus, it's going to be a sobering reminder that when we, when we start talking about God and being in the presence of God and doing the work of God, that's a serious thing to discuss. So shall we read now? We're going to do all of chapter 8 to begin, and then we'll do all of chapter 9, and then we'll slow down as we get to chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. May we be able to say that before anything that we do as a church. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. 
And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. Try to track with these. We've talked about what these ceremonies are already. The bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. He would be Aaron here. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days." until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. 
As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Chapters 1 through 7 outlined the various kinds of offerings that would be offered in the tabernacle. We had the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And now we get into chapter 8 and we're describing the ordination ceremony of Aaron and the other priests. This was outlined in detail back in Exodus chapter 29. If you would like to compare these two passages together, this one gives us less detail. It just runs through what happened. They brought Aaron and his four sons. They were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. They were brought to the tabernacle with the necessary implements, the clothing and everything, as well as the congregation. And it says the whole congregation. Sometimes that word will be used to describe the elders of the people as in the representatives of the congregation. But I'm inclined to think it was all of them there. And they go through this ceremony. First of all, they were washed in the bronze laver. So they would have been stripped and they would have been washed Aaron was then clothed in the high priestly garments. We've talked about these before. The blue robe, the ephod that had the 12 gemstones on it, the turban, and then that golden plate that would have said, holy to the Lord across his forehead. And then they would have clothed the other priests in their much simpler garments after they anointed the tabernacle. They took that special recipe of holy oil that was never to be duplicated. They anointed all the implements of the tabernacle, then they anointed Aaron himself as the high priest. And as they go through this, one of each offering was sacrificed that we read before, with the exception of the guilt offering. We talked about this last time. The guilt offering and the sin offering were the exact same ceremony, but they were for different reasons. The guilt offering would include repayment. So the sin offering was primarily to do with uncleanness and with unintentional sin. The guilt offering was if there was some kind of damage to be paid. So we're getting every kind of offering here. And these are the first sacrifices. Notice that they are offered by Moses, not by the priests. God is using Moses as a prophet to stand in for the ordination of the priesthood here. First, they have the sin offering. This is done to cleanse the altar and to cleanse the priests themselves. Second, we have the burnt offering, which was offered up on the altar. And then he says the ram of ordination. This was a peace offering. They don't identify it, but this is the same ceremony. The peace offering was different because you would partake in eating portions of the peace offering. It's sometimes called a fellowship offering for that reason. And it was also offered alongside a grain offering of unleavened bread. They almost kind of skipped over that, but there was the basket of unleavened bread, which would have been a grain offering or a cereal offering is what the the older translations have there. And the, the one distinguishing feature that you do not see in the normal peace offering is that there was blood put upon the priests themselves. Normally the blood, when it was drained, would be thrown against the side of the altar to sanctify it. This time it was also put upon the priests. We first with Aaron and then with the others. There was blood put upon their right earlobe, their right thumb, and the great toe of their right foot, just like on the altar. 
And this is a, a very symbolic thing here that we're going to spend some time to camp out upon. We already understand these ceremonies. You can go back and listen to last week and the week before if you have questions about it. But ordaining the priest for his service, God holds up these three things, these three parts of the body, to let the priest know how they are to conduct themselves in his service. Number one, they were to hear the Lord. They were to, number two, do his work, the hand. And number three, to walk in his ways. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. I told you we're going to re reference Hebrews a lot because Hebrews references Leviticus a lot and gives us this New Testament look on it. He tells us, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, like what we're seeing here, that the blood would be put on their flesh to sanctify them. The writer says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the writer to Hebrews makes a comparison between this ceremony, which by the way, the, the blood on the ear, the hand, and the foot was also done for lepers when they were cleansed. It's the same idea of cleansing somebody and restoring them to the presence of the Lord. So the writer to the Hebrews compares that ceremony to what Jesus did for us. That when he died on the cross, his blood, when you believed, was applied to you, so to speak. The sacrifice of Christ. We talk about being washed in the blood of Christ. And that it's not just salvation here, but he says it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That now your entire life, your behavior changes. Yes, this blood upon the priests marked a change of status for them, that now they were welcome in God's house and they could present offerings for the people, but also it, it needed to imply a responsibility of behavior for them. And that's why those three parts are so significant. And it's the same thing for you as a Christian, that the blood of Christ has marked you with a change of status. That's justification. You cannot approach God. You cannot be welcomed into heaven without the blood of Christ to cover you. But it also ought to imply a change of behavior now. Justification must needs lead to sanctification or else James and Paul and others would call into question whether you were justified in the first place. This is so important for us to know, especially because we're accustomed to being advertised to. We're accustomed to our leaders pitching themselves on what they can do for us around election season. We're accustomed to being kind and nice and, and trying to find out what everybody wants. And we reach out to the, the smallest minority groups in order to make sure that they, they're comfortable and find out what they want. Listen, y'all, when you come to God, it doesn't work that way. When you come to God, he's come to change your conscience, to change everything about you, to lead you from your dead works to serve him, the living God. This is so important to know that you are saved unto service. You are not just saved for its benefits. I mean, that's a huge part of it. Don't get me wrong. But tonight's lesson needs to be learned too. That you are saved unto service. Just as the children of Israel were led out of Egypt that they might serve the Lord. It's not just liberation. It's liberation unto service. That's salvation. So these three things apply for us as well. The blood was on the right earlobe. We must learn to listen to God's voice, to think his thoughts. Yes, 
Jesus does want to tell you how to think. We got to get that. That's an easy one. God doesn't want to tell you how to think. Uh, Yeah, he does. Because you don't know how to think, right? You don't know what's true. How are you supposed to know what's true about God? I was listening to uh, some video podcasting today, and somebody was talking about God and why they don't believe in the Christian God because they don't like some of the stuff he says. And I I always want to ask people, well, what are you comparing him to? What other source of knowledge do you have about God? Your opinions are no good. Our opinions aren't even good about each other. In fact, we get on each other for assuming that we know about somebody else. But God has come and revealed himself. So if you are saved, if you're going to claim salvation as your own, you must learn to listen to God and think his thoughts. And that means, first of all, you've got to learn what he said. He's given you an enormous book. It's really 66 books, the way that we splice it up, that you need to read and know. Because if you want to hear God's voice in the present, you need to know what he said in the past. Because the word of God is living, it's active, and God will speak to you. You've got to be listening, but you've got to know what he said first. That takes work. And y'all are here on a Wednesday night, so I'm not going to beat you up. But don't ever think that it shouldn't be hard to learn the truth about God. I'll study my Bible. It's just so hard. It shouldn't be this hard. Why? The Apostle Peter said the New Testament was hard to understand. So it's going to be tough. Especially, you know, we just had a conference about prophecy. Anybody that feels like they, they got it the first go around probably hasn't thought hard enough about it. You know, you, you, when you were a kid and you were growing up, you probably felt like you knew everything there was to know in the Bible. And, you know, my, my sons will say to me, like, I already know all the Bible stories. And then I'll try to pull some real obscure one out of there. Like, oh, I didn't know that story. Exactly. You've got to know it. You've got to take the time to learn it and then to conform your thinking to what it teaches. You have to bow to the authority of God's word. And then you listen to him as he speaks to you personally. You listen to God. He sanctified your ear with his blood. Secondly, you've got to learn with the blood on the thumb to do God's works, to actively step out and do what God has called us to do. This means to abstain from sin And to perform good works. We can't be allergic to the idea of good works just because we know we're not saved by good works. In fact, Paul told Titus when he sent Titus to go raise up elders on the island of Crete. He said, Jesus Christ has died on the cross and risen again to raise up a people for himself zealous for good works. That is enthusiastic to do good works. Christians ought to be excited to do good works. I love the example of Naaman, even though it was not a good situation. He wanted to give Elisha all of these things he had brought for him, and Elisha said, no, 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 I don't need anything. You know, grace is free. Elisha's servant Gehazi went out and and lied and tried to get some stuff out of Naaman, and it says Naaman willingly gave it. And I love that attitude, even though Gehazi was struck with leprosy for this, because Naaman's like, take whatever you want. That's what it means to follow Christ. God saved you from something far worse than leprosy, the death of sin in hell forever. So when God comes in and says, do this, it should be a joy to you. It should be a joy to do good works and to abstain from sin. A lot of times we use phrases like, I'm struggling with something or I'm praying through something when it's not that complicated. Just stop doing it. <laughs> now I know that there are, it's, sin is a struggle. I get it. But there are some times when, it's, when there's an obvious solution and you don't do it, then you ought to be full of fear and trembling, my friend. 
I remember telling my friend one time, I believe this was the man I'm thinking of, but y'all don't know him in any case, but it's like, you, you can't stay living with your girlfriend if you're not married. The Bible calls that fornication. It's wrong. I know, it's just, it's, we're, we're praying through, it's really hard to, no, it's not. Move out. Well, then it would be embarrassing. I'm sorry, Jesus hung on a cross naked for you. Do the works of God, abstain from sin, and perform good deeds. And number three, the blood on the right toe, to walk in all of God's ways. This is really kind of the catch-all, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, that is, of course, a comforting verse telling us, hey, you're not going to get everything. Trust God. But it's also telling you, you are not, contrary to the famous poem, the master of your fate and the captain of your soul if you're a Christian. God is. You're a disciple of Christ. Consider the man of the Gerasenes that was full of demons. And when they were all cast out of him, he said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Consider the Philippian jailer. When he realized who Paul and Silas were, he got on his knees before them and said, what must I do? That's the attitude. Following Jesus, walking after him, changing the way you go, letting him send you somewhere. Let Jesus send you to some dangerous place to preach the gospel. Let Jesus send you out of one job and into another. Let Jesus send you away from your comfort into what he's called you to do. We're to submit to him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That is, Lord, I'm following Jesus first. Blood on the ear, think God's thoughts, listen to his voice. Blood on the hand, do his works and abstain from sin. And number three, walk in his ways. Don't follow your own path. Don't forge your own destiny. Don't try to live your best life. You let God lead you. And that, I, you know, oddly enough, will be the best life that you could ever have. Because it's going to last forever. There's no satisfaction in just living your own way. Anybody found that to be true? I'm going to do whatever I want, I'm going to live it out, and I'm going to go after it. And then you get it, and it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And then you look on TV, but look at all these celebrities, they're, they're, they finally found it. No, they haven't. They churned through marriages, and they churned through millions of dollars, and they churned through addiction programs, and they're no better off than anybody else, ultimately, yet we keep trying it. Stop trying it. Stop trying it. Don't let some inspirational 12-year-old on TikTok tell you how to live your life. Oh, we laugh, but isn't that what people do? Is that what we do? Yeah, yeah, it'll work for me. No, it won't. Our own ways are disastrous. This is how God saves us, from dead works to serve the living God. It's not just how he saves us, but it's how we save the world, too, by living it out and letting people see. Moses anointed Aaron and his sons with oil and blood before they ate in the first peace offering, the first communion with the Lord. And they end up spending a week, seven days. And we read in Exodus 29 that they were to offer every day a bull for a sin offering. And in the morning and evening, they were to offer the burnt offerings of lambs. And it seems that Moses is the one offering these, but they were to participate as they participated in the first by putting their hands on its head, killing the animal, and so on. They were the participants, not the officiants for this first week. But they were to stay there and not to leave. They were keeping a vigil. There's something to be said for that. Kind of like how we have our weeks of prayer, right? Taking a specific amount of time to commit yourself to devotion and to prayer. Let's get into chapter 9 now. On the eighth day, so it's been a week, 
Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. That's one reason why we think the congregation may have been just the elders because they're sort of used interchangeably in this story. But anyway, verse two. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering. Isn't that ironic that Aaron's first sacrifice was a calf when he was the one who had built the golden calf? And a ram for a burnt offering both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar, and they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering, and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering, and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this is day eight. This is the completion of the ordination ceremony. And Aaron is going to offer his first offering as are his sons. So first we see, as we saw in Exodus 29, the daily sin and burnt offering. So this probably would have been around sunrise that this was done. I mentioned the irony that it was a calf that Aaron offered first. Kind of God's way of saying, this is what calves are for, Aaron. Not to be bowed down to and worshipped. Next, after doing those two, which were the the final stage of their ordination, now they're going to offer one of each offering, I hope you caught that, for the people. 
He's going to sanctify the people. Everything but the guilt offering for the same reasons I mentioned before. And Moses said, the reason was so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Very exciting, but do you remember the last time the glory of the Lord appeared to the people? They said, Moses, we don't want that anymore. You talk to God from now on and we'll listen to you. So I wonder if there was any fear and trembling among the people. And they go through all four of those offerings, a sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, and a grain offering. And after that, Moses, or excuse me, Aaron blessed the people. This is probably the same blessing that we see in Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Uh, we will talk about that in due time. It hasn't been recorded yet, but perhaps they had already heard it, or perhaps it was just a generic blessing. And then Aaron goes with Moses into the holy place, because you remember, for the congregation and for the high priest, when they were to offer a sin offering, they were supposed to sprinkle the blood before the veil. Do you remember this? And put blood on the incense altar. So he goes in with Moses to do that. And then it says, the glory of the Lord appeared. So the last thing we saw was that the cloud had filled the tabernacle. Apparently it had lifted enough that they could go in and they could minister. But now it says the glory of the Lord appeared, as in for real. Perhaps it was going from a, a pillar of cloud to a pillar of fire. Perhaps the voices started again. Maybe the shouts and the lightning started up again. Maybe it just intensified. We're not, we're not sure here. But it says that fire came from the Lord and burned up the offering. So they had already lit the fire, but here comes the fire of God accepting what they had offered before him. There are, that I could count, five different times in the Old Testament that the Lord himself sent fire from heaven to consume the offering. The first one is here in Leviticus chapter 9. The second time happens in Judges 13, when the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents, to Manoah and his wife, and tells them, you're going to have a child, he will be a Nazarite from birth, he'll be a judge, he'll have strength and all of that. Then when they offer the sacrifice to the angel of the Lord, it says, the fire went up and the angel of the Lord went up in the fire up to heaven, and they fell on their faces. Very common thing that happened when God's fire appeared, as you might expect. The next time it happened in 1 Chronicles 21. This is when David was at the threshing floor of Arana. Do you remember this story? This is when David had numbered the people. He wasn't supposed to do that. Even Joab, who was not a good guy, knew that they shouldn't do this. And so the Lord judged the people. He sent an angel of death to strike down the people. And it was at the threshing floor of Arana that the angel stopped. And that's where David went and offered a sacrifice. And that's where the fire of the Lord consumed it. That is the actual location where they would build the temple later on. So that's number three. Number four is in 2 Chronicles 7. This is at Solomon's temple. So the exact same thing that happened at the tabernacle happened in the temple when they first established it. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 1 says that when they offered the sacrifices, the fire from heaven consumed it. And then the last time you're very familiar, uh, I'm sure in 1 Kings 18, this is Elijah at Mount Carmel when they had the, the 400 prophets of Baal and then Elijah and they each built an altar and Elijah poured water all over his. And you, you might say, that's a pretty cool thing, which, which God is going to send fire from heaven. But hopefully you can see in Leviticus chapter 9, this is something that God had done before. It's also something that had been done in the temple before. So this is very much a Yahweh thing to do. 
that Elijah is calling on God to do. And that's one of the reasons he probably would have expected that. Again, they fell on their faces and they worshiped the Lord. This is what always happened. They'd fall on their face. They would shout. They would fear. They would worship God. Manoah thought he and his wife were dead for sure. They said, that angel of the Lord was the Lord and we're going to die now. Of course they didn't, but you can see the fear that comes along with that. Just as the children of Israel says, they all fell on their faces and shouted. So, you know, we sing that song, I can only imagine, right? Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel, right? Will I, will I dance? Will I sing? Will I be silent? Well, most of the time when people saw God's glory in the Bible, they shouted. They, they, they freaked out is probably a great 21st century way of putting it. I mean, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. Oh, woe is me, right? And there's one more time, very, very similar to this, when the fire of the Lord descended. And it's in Acts chapter 2. One of the best stories of the Bible, right? This is the church after Jesus has ascended to heaven. He tells him to wait. Ten days later, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I think that the Lord, in sending the Spirit in such a way, was deliberately calling back to when he had accepted the offering of the high priest at both the tabernacle and the temple. Because now the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted. And now the Lord sends his fire again, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit. When we do right when we decide we're going to get our act together and turn towards God and begin to offer up proper sacrifices of worship and praise, God will accept it and meet you there. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord will send his fire. He lights the fire on the altar. He meets us there. This is why it's worth taking the time. They took seven days of waiting on the Lord. It was worth waiting for. Ten days of fasting and prayer, and the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Take the time to wait on God. What does wait on the Lord mean? It's not complicated. It just means wait. Wait for the Lord. Wait on Him. Don't just say, all right, God, i got ten minutes before I have to leave for work, so if you could you know, fill me with your Holy Spirit real quick. Oh, come on. This is the living God we're talking about. I was hanging out with a group of pastors not long ago, and somebody said, why is it God always wakes me up at like three in the morning when he's got something he wants to say? And somebody said, because that's probably the only time you don't have something else going on when he can talk to you. And he wants to give you a little extra fire, shall we say. This is why we've been given the Holy Spirit in the first place, so that we might worship the Lord, declare his glory and his greatness. Isn't it wonderful? The first thing the Holy Spirit empowered the church to do was to praise him with other tongues. They began to shout and celebrate and declare, it says in Acts, the wonderful works of God. The second thing he empowered them to do was to evangelize. There's some lessons to be learned there, huh? Call upon the Lord, wait upon the Holy Spirit, wait upon God so that you can begin to function as the anointed priesthood that the church ought to be. So now in Acts chapter 9, this is a momentous occasion in the Bible. The priesthood is established. Up till now, there have been no priests. We've seen Melchizedek, for example, who's kind of an anomaly in the Bible. We've seen that some men have offered offerings on an altar to the Lord, but now for the first time, you have an official established priesthood. 
And the Bible says that God made an everlasting covenant with Aaron and his sons that will never be broken and was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is our great high priest. So this is a huge moment in scripture. I know Leviticus is not our favorite. It's not the most exciting book to read through. I know that it might seem tedious to read all of the descriptions of these sacrifices, but this was huge. This was, this was God providing a way for us to come into his presence. Whereas before the last time we had dealings with God's presence, he kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. You can't be in here. Then in Exodus chapter 40, they built the tabernacle according to God's design. He filled it, but Moses couldn't go in. Once again, you can't come in here. So God establishes these men to stand in the gap to offer sacrifices so that we can enter the presence of God. Don't skip over it just because it's written in a style that is foreign to you. We're used to that very lean, very newspapery, Ernest Hemingway kind of style of writing. Get to the point and tell me what's going on. This is too heavy. There's too much gravitas to what's happening now to be written that way. So take the time as you read your Bible to appreciate the genre that you're reading and to be able to understand what's happening here. This is huge. There are priests now. But to use our illustration from the start of the, stu the study, this is when the debt gun explodes is in chapter 10. This is when things go horribly wrong. And everything that has been so wonderful, the presence of God falling on your face, the fire has consumed the offering, chapter 10. And this seems to happen almost immediately after this. And I, I'm inclined to think it might have even been the same moment. But let's, let's just read this. Now, Nadab and Abihu, you would have pronounced those Nadav and Avihu. The sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, signs of mourning, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance... <clears throat> and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron, were consumed by the fire of God like the offering had been consumed by the fire of God. Why? Well, verse 1, the ESV translates it unauthorized fire. The literal word there is zur in Hebrew, and it means strange. It also can mean foreign. So strange as in a stranger. We think strange and we think almost weird or, or 
incorrect, but it's the idea of foreign, which is why the ESV uses the word unauthorized. But strange fire really catches the sense here. And the only explanation that it's given, other than the fact that it was zur, it was strange or foreign fire, was that he had not commanded them. Whatever they did, it was not in accordance with the rules that God had given them. we just seen the whole back half of Exodus, the first seven chapters of Leviticus, and then in 8 and 9, everything was according to the rule of the Lord. And the first thing that is done, that is not what God has commanded, is judged by fire. And we can only speculate what this might have been. The very next commandment God's going to give them in verse 8 is against drunkenness. So some have speculated that perhaps the reason that was put there was because these men were inebriated at the time. Although I'm less inclined to think that after preparing for this because you realize they'd been in the, in the uh, tabernacle for seven days. So it's not as if they'd been sneaking off home and this was not during some other occasion. So, but that's certainly possible. It's also possible that because it's the word foreign, that they were doing some sort of ritual that they had picked up in Egypt or from some of the other nations. And that's why he uses that word foreign. Perhaps, obviously, Aaron knew how to make idols. So perhaps his sons were familiar with some of the idolatrous practices of the Egyptians. And maybe they saw the fire of the Lord and they panicked and they reverted back to what they knew. And they thought they would appease the God, and they did it in a way that was not authorized. Perhaps they just messed up the ceremony. Maybe they went into the holy place when they weren't supposed to go into the holy place. We really just simply don't know. All that we know is that it was not what God had commanded them and that it was zur. It was strange or foreign or unauthorized. In any case, immediately God speaks to Moses and Moses speaks to Aaron. And he says, among those who are near me, meaning the priests, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And he sends two of their cousins. So these were not priests because the priests were not to leave, remember, not to leave the courtyard until the ceremony was complete. So two of the cousins carry the bodies out to be disposed of outside of the camp, which is where unclean things were burned. Remember this? This is where they had taken the skins, the dung, the the parts that were not to be burned of the sacrifices. Now they're carrying out Nadab and Abihu to the same ash heap. And Aaron and the other sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, were forbidden to mourn for them. Because don't, don't let your hair hang loose which is an interesting cultural note that perhaps their hair was long and they they kept it tied up. We don't know. And also don't tear your clothes because what clothes are they wearing? Do you remember? These are the priestly robes. Don't don't tear those things. I don't care how how grieved you are. And in fact, it would be a rule that we'll see later that the high priest was never to tear his clothes out of grief. He was to be above all of that as God's representative, which is why when Jesus tells Caiaphas, that I am the son of God and you will see me riding on the clouds of heaven and Caiaphas tears his clothes. It's just to be one other instance of how this trial had nothing to do with God's law and God's justice because they were breaking his rules left and right. But here, this is specifically, they are forbidden to mourn. Although he says, tell your brothers, meaning the congregation, your other family members, they ought to weep and wail for what just has been done. But you yourself may not. Now this seems so harsh to us. And it's harsh, like when the Lord told Ezekiel, you're not to mourn for your wife when she dies, because I'm not going to mourn for Israel when she's exiled. But the lesson God is teaching here 
is that sin and uncleanness were not to approach God's holiness ever. And that when someone was struck down because they violated God's holiness through sin or through uncleanness, that was not something to mourn over. It was something to bow your head and say, true and righteous are your judgments, O God. God did the same thing in Acts chapter 5. God, when God began a new dispensation with his people, he very often did something like this. God did not strike down every priest dead who sinned in the tabernacle as we will see as we continue through the Bible. But the first time, he did. Acts chapter 5, the church was gathered together. Men like Barnabas began to sell their land, and they were to donate the funds to the people, to the church, to be used for the poor. Now Ananias and Sapphira come in, and they sell a piece of land. They give not all of it. So let's say they give 50%. We're just speculating. They give 50%. Was that wrong for them to only give half? No, it was not. But what was wrong was, was for them to lie and make out like they were giving all of it so that they could receive the credit like Barnabas got. And Peter was tipped off by the Holy Spirit. He rebukes Ananias and Sapphira later, and the Lord struck them dead in the temple. And the young men carried them out. I think there's a deliberate picture there that they carried them out and buried them just like Nadab and Abihu were carried out to the ash heap. Hebrews 12 Verses 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, meaning because we are grateful, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We often think of that phrase in reference to the enemies of the faith, and that is an appropriate use of that verse. But the immediate context is for us to approach God with fear and trembling, reverence and awe, because he's a consuming fire. God is not tolerant of sin. Let me say that again. God is not tolerant of sin. God is patient towards sinners. Do you understand the difference? God does not tolerate sin. He is patient with sinners. He does not judge sin immediately so that the sinner might have time to repent and come back. And we are warned in Romans chapter 2 not to presume upon the grace of God. There is a limit. There comes a point where God says, enough! Even to his people. Consider the child of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. God forgave David and forgave Bathsheba, but he took the child's life. That was judgment. David prayed, but God said no. And then when David arose, he did not get angry at God because he knew he had sinned. He had failed in his responsibilities as a father and as a husband to her and as a friend to Uriah. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul tells these profane Corinthians that were coming to the communion ceremony, getting drunk off the communion wine... He says, this is why a lot of you are getting sick and dying in the church. Consider that. Imagine if we, we had a lot of sudden sicknesses and deaths in the church. Lord, why? What's going on? God, help us. And then pastor, prophet, teacher comes in and says, the reason is because of your sins. God doesn't do that anymore. That's New Testament, y'all. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Revelation chapter 2, written to the Thyatiran church. Jesus says, 
you got a lot of good things going on, but you've got that Jezebel woman in the church. We don't know anything about her personally. God, Jesus calls her Jezebel. I'm sure that was not her real name. But she seemed to be some kind of false prophetess in the church that was leading the people into sexual immorality. And that you were tolerating and lifting her up. Imagine if I was allowing some woman to come up here and give false sensationalist prophecies every week and she was also seducing and sleeping with all the men in the church and everybody knew about it and we allowed it to continue. Jesus says, I'm about to throw her into a sickbed and the only reason I haven't done anything yet and haven't taken her life and the rest of your lives is because I'm trying to give you room to repent. I'm not here to threaten you, but I'm reminding you that God is God and our God is a consuming fire and we are his humble servants. And if we play games with holiness and righteousness, there are biblical threats that ought to concern you. Do not rest so much in the doctrines of grace and justification that you completely neglect the vast majority of moral warnings in the Bible. How many churches are filled with sin? Well, Jesus paid for my sin. But have you left it behind? Have you repented? Have you moved forward? Are you on your knees weeping and grieving over those areas that are still difficult to uproot out of your heart? Or are you reveling in it? God says, among my people, those who stand before me, I will be sanctified. To sanctify something is to make it holy, to set it apart. This room is called the sanctuary because it is set apart for holy use. So God says, you will treat me as holy. I am not a common thing. I am not one of these gods that you can manipulate with your prayers and your sacrifices. I am not just somebody that you come when you need something. I am the holy, living I am of all creation, and you will regard me as holy if you are to stand before me. We cannot treat God as though he's not dangerous. The Lord is dangerous. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And that fear leads to the love of God as you recognize that in that fear he has reached down to save you. But in that growth and transformation, you cannot lose that fear and trembling before the Lord. When we lose that, that's when the churches fall apart. If you really believed that the true and living God stood behind this book, would you dare try to tamper with it or reinterpret it or ignore pieces of it? How dare you? That's how I feel when I read some of these books or hear some of these podcasters or these people in the church so full of ignorance but all kinds of boldness to address God as if he were just another person. Even in his grace, your God is a consuming fire. And when you come into this place to worship and sing praise to him, it's not just to sing along. When you come and you hear me speak this word to you, you're not just listening to a TED Talk or a live recorded podcast. I am to speak, the Bible says, as one who holds the oracles of God. 
You are to listen to the words preached to you in so much as they are in line with the scripture as the very words of God. When we come here, we are about holy business. And as low church Christians, meaning we don't have robes, we don't have ceremonies, we don't have the, the Latin chants and all of that, we have to work to remember this. That God is holy. It says that when Jesus would do a miracle, the people would be afraid because they knew God had been in their midst and they knew what they were like. He must be sanctified. And before all the people, he says he must be glorified. Do you like how the Lord says, I will? As in, it's not up to you. It's going to happen. I will be sanctified and I will be glorified. I will be sanctified. That's your attitude towards God. And I will be glorified as your attitude and how you represent him to other people. That is, you must worship me outwardly. I'm not going to let this whole congregation watch Nadab and Abihu improvise worship in the tabernacle. That does not glorify me. Moses will be denied entry to the promised land because rather than speak to the rock, he struck the rock. He says, you did not glorify me before the people. You did not sanctify me. So you are losing out on your blessing. We only ever ought to have an attitude of worship and praise and submission to God before the world. How you represent God to those who are not Christians is of great concern to your Father in heaven. There are some of you who would sooner badmouth God than your own family in public. There are some of us who think nothing of complaining about God, complaining about his word, complaining about church, complaining about our pastor, complaining about any of these things where everybody can see. Posting it online, mocking God, mocking the scriptures so that people can, when you fail to glorify God, other people will fail to sanctify God. And if they see Christians treating God like a common thing and failing to glorify him, they'll think he is a common thing and they won't see any reason to bow the knee before him. How you represent him matters. How many people have you tried to share the gospel with and they say the church is full of all these people and here's what they did and here's what this pastor did and what my mama did in Jesus' name. Don't complain about the commandments of scripture. That should be obvious. Don't even say those things like you're trying to win people on the outside. I wish it didn't say that, but it did. How dare you? That's God's word. Don't wink at the commandments of the scripture. I know the Bible says not to cuss, but hey, just between you and me, and then off you go. I know the Bible says, but hey, we all kind of know what goes on. Yeah, I know we're not supposed to revile our rulers of the people, but here's what I really think about this president. Are you really glorifying God? Are you denying God by your life? You come to church, you sing, you worship, you post stuff online, but the way you live, you, nobody would ever know you worshiped God except that there's some weird thing on your Facebook page. That shames God. And that's a fearful place to be because God will not allow himself to be shamed for long. He will step in and glorify himself if his people do not. Jesus said, if, the, if my disciples don't praise my name today, the rocks of the earth will cry out and praise me. God says, I will be sanctified and I will be glorified. Nor ought we to minimize sin 
by our grief over its judgment or our indifference to its judgment. The world does not like the fact that God judges sin. They are wrong to dislike that. And we are wrong when we try to make friends that way. I just I, It's a harsh thing that God sends people to hell. No, it's not. It is the most fair, just, good thing on the face of the planet. Sin must be judged. And when the people complain about that, they're wrong to do so. So don't you join in. Don't you tear your clothes and mourn over God's judgment when it's God's judgment and you're supposed to represent him. True and righteous are the judgments of the Lord altogether. If God sees fit to raise up one nation and tear another down, if God sees fit to bring down one minister or raise up another, if God sees fit to raise up one family or tear them down, you ought to be trembling with holy fear and not questioning God, especially before other people. This is the real deal. You've got to maintain God consciousness, meaning you are factoring God in to how you talk and where you go and what you say and the ear and the hand and the foot. Maybe you need to come back. Maybe you've got to offer sacrifices before the Lord of fasting and prayer. You've got to take seven days to restore yourself before the Lord. Because Nadab and Abihu were struck dead with the fires of heaven. And when we call upon the presence of the Lord to be among us, y'all, when you pray for revival, this is what goes down when God shows up. It's not all miracles and healings and happy songs. It's judgment. Look at every revival in history. People get judged. Denominations die and fall because they're dead and they're atrophied. And God says, I'm going to do something new and it's going to be at the expense of the old. The old wineskins are going to burst when I pour out on the new ones. Our God is a consuming fire. So let us offer to God worship with reverence and awe. We'll finish this chapter now. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. That's one reason why some have speculated this was the sin of Nadab and Abihu, because it seems sort of out of place, although it is still about the priests and how they conduct themselves in God's house. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. This is a key verse of the book of Leviticus here. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, remember the, the thigh and the breast were to be the piece that the priest would receive. You shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed or heaved and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever as the Lord has commanded." Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. 
not eaten is the idea. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary? Since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. So more ordinance are given for the priests here. This, this reference in verse 10, distinguishing between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, is an introduction to what we're going to see starting at chapter 11, which is often called the holiness code. This is where you get the cleanliness laws and a lot of the moral things that will come later. The first thing we see, they were not to have alcohol before their service in the, in the tabernacle, and they were to observe and teach God's laws. So the priests had a teaching function. And these ordinances also continue into our present dispensation. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 2 both say that an elder in the church is not to be given to wine. It's not to be a drunkard. That should be obvious, right? You don't want somebody that is addicted to alcohol preaching in God's church. And the main reason for that is you need to be able to make a sound judgment at all times. And finally, they are to eat the offerings to complete this ceremony, which kind of gives us a sense of timing that it seems that before they had gotten to the grain offering, that's when the issue with Nadab and Abihu had happened. So they're picking up where they left off. But it turns out toward the end that the goat that was offered for the people had been burned, not eaten, as was ordered. And Moses, as you saw, got angry with Eliezer and Ithamar. Apparently, they were the ones handling that sacrifice, not Aaron. Any offering that was not brought into the holy place. So remember, if it was brought into the holy place and the blood was sprinkled, you couldn't eat it. But if it was not brought into the holy place, then you could eat it by the officiating priest here. And Moses gets angry because, once again, we're messing with the ceremony. But Aaron intervenes here, and basically he's pleading grief over his sons. It's basically, they had no appetite for this offering. He says, how are we supposed to, to our, our brothers just died and you want us to go and have a meal? We just watch them get burned up before the Lord. And Moses approved this. Because technically they were still within the law of Moses, as, I, as far as I can read it here. That they didn't have to eat it. If it wasn't eaten, it was to be burned. But apparently for this first ceremony, Moses had really wanted them to, to consume this offering here. But Aaron steps in and says, Do you think that God would be happy with me if I was celebrating over the, the death of my own sons? And it says Moses approved. Even in situations like this, there is grace at work. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus and his disciples were eating heads of grain in the field, the Pharisees rebuked them for it. And Jesus said, well, what about when David ate the showbread when he and his men were hungry? Jesus said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus made an awful lot out of the exceptions to the rules. And it seems that we see here one already. Because it was not a deliberate, willful violation, but it seems to have been just an emotional upheaval that allowed them not to fail in their duties, but to take the, the lesser course, you might say. And the good news for us is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he said he would rather show mercy rather than judgment. If you will come to the Lord in honest brokenness. If you 
fail in the, in the things of God because you're arrogant, there's no mercy for you. But if you fail in the things of God because of an honest brokenness in your life, there's mercy for you. If you were to follow the strict law, we would all be sunk. But there's atonement available for us. So for this reason, tonight, if you are convicted of sin, you ought to be. Be broken. But take heart because God is love. And he wouldn't have warned you if he didn't want you to make it right tonight. So a big moment in the story of the children of Israel. It's very common in spiritual matters for the big moments to kind of underwhelm. We thought this was going to be great, and yet our humanity got in the way. And sometimes there are days that should have been great triumphs, but they turn to tragedy because of sin. And so for this reason, take extra care to be holy and righteous before our holy and righteous God. And when you find yourself in the wrong, repent with sincerity. But even in the midst of all that, remember that there is love from our Father who has mercy on broken people. The key is to keep going, to press on, to trust that God will make up the difference when you fall short. In Christ Jesus, you have the grace to fail and the grace to get back up again. But do not squander that blessed opportunity that was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ himself.